Pray with me, please. <clears throat> Our Father, as we are about to reflect upon the greatest message ever given to humanity, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and give us the ability to see uh, deeply into the things of Christ. For it is in his name and for whose sake we gather this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A doctor's cure for the common Christmas. We're thinking of Dr. Luke, of course, who uh, give us, gave us the text that we are focusing on this morning. Victor Borga, that delightful pianist, said he had an uncle who invented a cure for which they had not yet found a disease. Christmas is not an uplifting time for a lot of people. We know that to be true. And perhaps you've gone through times in your own life when Christmas was less than joyful. And yet the message, the message does prevail and fills our hearts with hope. Back in 1965, uh, when I was at CBS, something was broadcast which was uh, unusual, to say the least. It was uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas, an animated classic, which if you haven't seen, you ought to see. Charles Schultz uh, helped put it together, and uh, there were those at CBS who were a bit reluctant particularly because of the gospel message, which was embedded in that animated classic. And uh, Charles Schultz was insistent. If that message was not in the text of the cartoon, as it were, he would not allow it to go on. And so it did go on. And... Uh, the switchboard at CBS lit up at the end of that broadcast. And the executives were all a little bit uh, worried about what was going to happen. But all the calls were so supportive and so happy because of the message. The Peanuts gang, you know, they were scurrying about, trying to get a, a Christmas pageant together, and finally, in frustration, Charlie Brown cries out, can't anybody tell me the meaning of Christmas? And it's Linus, of course, little Linus, with his security blanket, who uh, gives the real message of Christmas, doesn't he? And I'm going to read it from the King James Version. That was the version that I first learned, and those of you who are old enough will have learned it in King James Version as well. And it's a lovely version. And strange as it may seem to those of us who love modern translations, the King James Version is actually remarkable in its translations. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, 
which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, which you've probably read several times already uh, this Advent season. One of the things that strikes me about this text uh, is that it was announced to shepherds. Uh, shepherds were the biggest nobodies in Israel. There was nobody lower on the social scale than shepherds. Uh, the Talmud, that ancient Jewish document, uh, in the Midrashim, which were the commentaries, mentioned the shepherds in a most uncomplimentary way. In fact, there was a statement that said, if you were to come upon a shepherd who had fallen into a pit, you shouldn't feel obligated to take him out. Shepherds were denied their civil rights. Their testimonies were not accepted in a court of law. Imagine the message coming to people like this. They were the Am Haaretz, as they called them in the Hebrew, the people of the land. They were looked down upon as irreligious, people who had no spiritual sensitivities, like the Pharisees, for example. And so they were generally despised. God's announcement of great news comes to the outcasts of society. If you've ever felt disenfranchised, you're not alone in the great drama of redemption. Years ago, also back in the 1960s, I met Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer uh, founded La Brie in Switzerland, which was a place where not a few people came to know Christ over the years. Uh, one of them, our dear brother Hugh Wessel, who has been a missionary to France uh, so much of his life. But I recall a, a true story of Francis Schaeffer when he was in Paris on one occasion, walking with a bunch of his friends down a Paris street. Uh, they passed a streetwalker, and he stopped, and he asked her how much well, his friends were aghast. And to make matters worse, he turned to her and said again, after she had given him her price, how much? And she repeated her price. Well, he said to her that she didn't understand what he was really asking about. She did not know how to answer such a question he explained that she was made in the image of God and that Christ had died for her, that she might have fellowship with God. And her price was far too low if she understood the depths of God's love for her in Christ. On God's short list were people like that, people who were looked down upon, people of no account, people who were walking in darkness. 
You know the text in Isaiah 9, don't you? We also hear that, especially at this time. We read it, we worship by means of it. People walking in darkness have seen a great light, Isaiah says in chapter 9. Originally a promise to Israel, who was indeed walking in darkness, brought to greater fulfillment in our text this very day. The kavod Yahweh, the glory of God, shone upon them. Isaiah 9, 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Let me read these words from the late Frederick Buechner, whom, you've, if you haven't read, you would probably enjoy reading. Buechner, a fine author who had some very deep ideas. In one respect, if in no other, this metaphor, the people walked in darkness. This metaphor of Isaiah's is very relevant for you and for me and our age because we are also, God knows, a people who walk in darkness. There seems little need to explain. If darkness is meant to suggest a world where nobody can see very well, either themselves or each other, or where they are heading, or even where they are standing at the moment, if darkness is meant to convey a sense of uncertainty, of being lost, of being afraid, if darkness suggests conflict, conflict between races, between nations, between individuals, each pretty much out for himself when you come right down to it, then we live in a world that knows much about darkness. Darkness is what our newspapers are all about. Darkness is what most of our contemporary literature is about. Darkness fills the skies over our own cities, not less than over the cities of our enemies. And in our single lives, we know much about darkness, too. If we are a people who pray, darkness is apt to be a lot of what our prayers are about. If we are a people who do not pray, it is apt to be darkness in one form or another that has stopped up our mouths. The Apostle Paul knew a lot about darkness. He had been blinded by his own sin. En route to Damascus that fateful day, Luke, Dr. Luke again, is the one who records it for us in the ninth chapter of Acts. He records Paul's account of what happened to, to him on that journey. In verse 3 of Acts 9, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. What does that make you think of? Well, it's the very same words that the angels spoke to the shepherds. And now to this religious man, Paul, who thought he was doing God a favor by wiping out Christians. He came to see, even in that moment perhaps, that his best efforts were a gross parody of real righteousness that they were, as Isaiah said, filthy rags, Isaiah 64, verse 6. And later in his own personal testimony, remember in Philippians, how in the third chapter, he says that everything that he had accumulated to his credit were garbage, garbage, just worth throwing out and nothing more. He was very much like those of whom he speaks in the first chapter of Romans, wasn't he? Futile in his thinking, his foolish heart, 
darkened. But with Paul, as with all of us here today, if we know Christ, it is because God has taken the initiative and sent us a Savior. When I was a boy, we celebrated Hanukkah. Hanukkah is being celebrated right now by Jewish people throughout the world, and it will come to an end in another day. Uh, Hanukkah celebrated a Savior. His name was Judah Maccabee. Now, Judah Maccabee uh, led a, a guerrilla band of Jews against Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the Syrian invader, and gave a, a victory over that, uh, that uh, vain and brutal man. Well, the word uh, Savior here could mean that kind of individual. You know, the name of Jesus is the name Yeshua, and that's the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. It means Savior. And a lot of Jews at the time of Jesus were expecting that kind of a Savior, someone like Joshua or someone like uh, Judah Maccabee, who would get rid of all the foreign invaders, uh, the Romans in this case. But in the prophecy of the Messiah's birth, Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, Micah, who was Isaiah's younger contemporary prophet, said that it would be Bethlehem where the Messiah would be born. Small village, about five miles south of Jerusalem, whose claim to fame was that David had been born there. It was the city of David. But now it would be the birthplace of the Messiah. And that, that prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, tells us more uh, than just the place of his birth. It says of the Messiah, chapter 5, verse 2, whose goings forth are from eternity. Whose goings forth are from eternity. What does that convey to you? Well, if you read it honestly and openly, it means that he's deity. He's no less than God. And then in the same text, Micah writes, he will come forth for me. That is God speaking. In other words, God is saying of the Messiah, he will come forth to do my will. He'll come forth for me to accomplish my purposes. And indeed, that is just what Jesus came to do. You shall call his name Yeshua. We read in the scriptures, Matthew 1, verse 21, the words to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. Now, here's an interesting contrast that the writer of Hebrews draws for us. And you probably have read it if you've read Hebrews, which is a wonderful book of the New Testament. In chapter 4, verse 8, the writer says, if Joshua, if Yeshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of yet another day. If Joshua, that is the Old Testament Joshua, had given them rest, there, would no, there wouldn't be any need for a new Joshua, a new one, a new Savior, who is Yeshua, Jesus, because his salvation is quite dissimilar from the uh, salvation that the Old Testament Joshua had to offer. For he will save his people from their sins. That's the promise of the new covenant. 
That's why the book of Hebrews in chapter 8 uh, quotes the entire uh, unit from Jeremiah 31 about the forgiveness of sins and this, uh, this uh, one who would bring, in, bring the new covenant to pass in the lives of his own people. He will bring the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, Luke 1, 77. Or Luke 1, 79. I like the New English version here, the New English Bible. He will bring light to those who live in darkness under the cloud of death. Mm, that conveys something, doesn't it? Living under the cloud of death and to guide our feet into the way of shalom, the way of true peace. And these were the words of Zechariah in Luke's gospel about his son John and how John the baptizer would introduce Jesus as this one who would bring that kind of salvation. And it will be for all the people. He is the prince of peace, Isaiah 9 tells us. The prince of peace. What does it mean to be the prince of peace? That means he's the boss. He's in control of peace. He's, he's the one who has the absolute mastery of it. I have come into the world as light, Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, that's something that Pastor Drew pointed out last night on our Christmas Eve service, that we are not people who are in the light already, just group looking around for something that would be good for us. We are people who are in darkness, and we're going to not remain in darkness. Why, it is the Christ himself who will bring us out. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And is it true? And is it true? Let me read the words of John Betjeman, who was uh, England's poet laureate in a previous generation. And is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea become a child on earth for me? And is it true? For if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and inexpensive scent and hideous tie so kindly meant, no love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Beautiful poem, isn't it? Of course, we go beyond that, beyond the sacrament to which Benjamin was referring. He is alive today for you and for me. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, I don't know what uh, language the angel spoke to the shepherds when the angel appeared. If he spoke in Hebrew, uh, he probably would have used, uh, to parallel the text that we have before us, uh, the word hinye. Hinye is the word behold. Uh, the Bible likes this word behold, but it is not used uh, indiscriminately. It is used to introduce something of real importance. And in fact, 
If we go into the text, it probably would have occurred twice in the, uh, in the original uh, spoken to the angels. For lo, the angel of the Lord uh, uh, appeared before them. Behold. Uh, in other words, the angel of the Lord uh, was before them. Or behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. It's an attention-getting device, behold is. Uh, if, 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 you, if you were a, a native living in darkest Africa uh, and uh, you had never seen any human being at all in, in your whole life, and all of a sudden, a Boeing 747 passed overhead, you would say, behold, <laughs> because it's that kind of a word. Uh, does it get our attention this morning? Does it get our attention? Well, the little, little, Christmas, the little Christmas tale is such a beautiful story. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come, peasant king, to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. You know, when Isaiah gives his great prophetic message, in chapter 9, which is, of course, the, the explanation of the wonderful virgin prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. Isaiah 8, just before Isaiah 9, Isaiah says there was a great gloom of anguish for the people. Gloom of anguish. But now, when Isaiah 9 opens up, it's, there'll be no more gloom. The gloom is gone. How is it gone? Because God has sent his son, Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, the one who brings peace to those who trust in him. Do you, do you trust in him this morning? Is he your savior? Is he the one you turn to for the forgiveness of sins, for, for the fulfillment of your life's greatest passions and desires? Well, uh, if we can say that together, we'll say with Tiny Tim, God bless us, everyone. And he will, because he is the Savior. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the angel's word uh, to the shepherds. We thank you for his word to us. We thank you, Lord, for the, for the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that uh, this Christmas day, will be a day in which we will celebrate his love for us personally and come to him with all of our heart's desire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.